Brian forgot one of the things that, that uh, wasn't listed up there, and that's what I call drive-by encourager. Um, I did that yesterday. I drove by and saw all these people working on a home of a single parent with some teenagers who was in desperate need of things in, in repair. And it was so cool to see people scraping windows, painting windows, painting soffits, building different er- er- things around the house. And I thought I was going to come by and encourage them. I was so encouraged by what God was doing through these people who were helping. And then I came by the church here, and there was a whole other group of people who were working all around the grounds of the church, pulling up old bushes, putting in new ones. And if you look around as you go out, there was a group of people who were working, who uh, were giving of their time and their gifts to do that. And I went home and was just so proud of you as a body and proud of how you give in so many different ways. And so today I'm kind of excited just to speak around this topic of generosity that is really a part of this body, but I want to encourage us to even consider it more so, maybe to look at it from even another angle. Let's pray. Father, thank you for each and every person here. Thank you for the gifts you've given us, the greatest gift of life, of breath. And every one of us, you told us in your word, have been given special gifts to be able to share into the lives of others. Thank you so much. God, take this gift that you've given me, and I pray, speak through me to the hearts of each person here, and particularly, God, to allow your spirit to either encourage or challenge or prod or whatever you may need to do today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I was thinking about this message, and I was thinking about generosity, and I thought, just imagine if some people didn't use their gifts. They didn't actually generously give themselves away when they felt led or when they felt the Spirit of God kind of prompting them and initiating them to do something because they saw a need. Can you envision a world that didn't have Paul the Apostle, a person who never witnessed to anyone? Can you imagine Paul never having written a letter to a struggling group of people so you wouldn't have these letters to read? Never starting a church, or Paul never generously giving himself to the needs of others around him. Picture, in a sense, Paul entering a synagogue, taking the back seat, saying nothing throughout the service, quietly sitting there through the service, putting in his time, and then leaving to return to his tent-making business. Had this prompting to do something, but never did. I mean, just think, your life, my life, so many people's lives would be so bankrupt without that generous gift of himself. There's a lady in Scripture named Tabitha. Her Greek name is Dorcas, which means gazelle, and I think she was called that because she was so quick and graceful and so generous with her life. She lived in a city called Joppa, and Scripture says she was always doing good and helping the poor. She became ill and she died. The Apostle Peter happened to be about a village or so away, close enough so that the followers of Jesus in this town called Joppa came to Peter and urged him to come back to their town where Tabitha lay dead. And Peter went with them, and when he arrived, he was taken upstairs to where Tabitha lay. And it says in Acts 9.39, all the widows stood around him. Picture the scene. All the widows standing around him, crying and showing him the robes and other clothing that Tabitha had made for them while she was still with them alive. See, people couldn't imagine their town, their city, their community without this woman and her goodness, her generosity. So Peter sent them out of the room and prayed, it says in Scripture, turning toward the dead woman. He said, Tabitha, get up. She opened her eyes and she looked at Peter and sat up, it says in Scripture, Acts chapter 9, verse 40. 
And I love that account, whether you really understand or you're kind of checking out uh, the Bible and church and you're just kind of going, whoa, that's really kind of a big deal. Well, you know, Scripture is kind of interesting because if you read the life of Jesus, he comes to a man named Lazarus one time who's in a tomb. He's been there dead for four days. And he says, move the stone. They go, it's going to smell. And he he says, I'll move it anyway. They move it and he yells out, Lazarus, come out. Scripture looks at that whole idea of death like sleep. It's as if he was just kind of shaking him and saying, Lazarus, get up. Tabitha, get up. In this case, for Tabitha, God had more good things for her to do. I think of a man named William Booth, back in 1865. He is a London minister. He gave up the comfort of his own pulpit and decided to take the message of the gospel, the good news about God through Jesus Christ, into the streets. He took it to the streets. Where it would reach the poor, the homeless, the hungry, and the destitute. His original aim was to actually go and to help these people and to feed them and, and to find homes for them. And as they came to a faith and a trust and they began to move out of that situation, was to get them back into churches. And he wanted to do that, but he realized soon after he started helping them that those who were that poor, that destitute, didn't feel comfortable coming into the churches in that day, the church of Victorian churches in England that were filled with these pews of proper people. And when they'd come, they just didn't feel Accepted, and, and it says at one point, regular churchgoers were appalled when these shabbily dressed, unwashed people came to join them in worship. I just, I, it just hurts me when I read that. So Booth decided to found a church, especially for these people in East London, called the Christian Mission. And this mission, it didn't grow right away. It took time. It grew slowly over time. But he had a faith commitment. He, was, he believed that God had called him to do this. He generously gave out his life and his heart to it, and the mission grew slowly. As he believed and trusted God, by the 1900s, the army had spread throughout the world to 36 countries, including the United States of America. And this well-organized yet flexible structure inspired many much-needed services towards those who were poor, homeless, and destitute. There was the women's social work, the first food depot, kind of food shelter, the first day nursery, and there it even sprung from that, a Salvation Missionary Hospital. Can you imagine how different life would be for so many if William Booth never gave up his pulpit, never decided to, you know, go with the prompting, step out of his pulpit, go into the streets where they were homeless and hungry and destitute and begin to minister to those people. And as a result of taking that first step, he took another step, which was to find a place for those people. And through those steps, God did some incredible things. And can you imagine the lives that could stand up here throughout history of these last number of years could stand up here and say, thank God that William Booth was generous. Claire Barton, she was born in 1821. She had been a school teacher. She was also a clerk in the U.S. Patent Office. She actually earned the name the Angel of the Battlefield during the Civil War. Barton's experiences of collecting and distributing supplies to soldiers during the Civil War, as well as she went out into the battlefields as a nurse in order to help those who had been hurt, made her a champion for the rights of wounded soldiers. She basically took a step. She was a teacher. She began to see the need. She saw what was out there. She began to distribute clothes and food to those who were soldiers. And then after that, she began to see those hurt in the battlefield. So she took another step, and that another step led to another step until finally, after the Civil War, Barton aggressively lobbied for the establishment of the American Red Cross, which was founded in 1881. Try to ponder what the world would be like if Claire Barton hadn't generously given herself, followed that prompting and the next prompting, and taken those steps to do the things she did. Imagine Barton spending her whole life as a school teacher. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. But imagine her spending her life in the patent office, 
but not responding to the, to the prompting that said, there's a need here, I want you just to take this step and to do this. And that little step led to another step to another step. Sometimes we get so caught up in the big part of it, of what it was established, we forget that they were just little steps by the prompting of God's Spirit that caused people to take a step and they just get a little bit involved and a little bit more. And God has this incredible plan, this incredible work that he wants to do. And it may not be that you're founding Salvation Armies or Red Cross or interfaith outreaches or, or things such as that. You may be like a Tabitha who just was doing some things in her community that made a difference. Now imagine, if you would, with me for just a second... These surrounding villages, without the ministry of interfaith outreach, without the ministry of other what is we had heard from Brian, those redwood trees which kind of take their roots and kind of bond together in, in a grove. Imagine churches in, in interfaith not being here, not having done the work that it's going to do. Imagine 20 years out if we as a church don't take this step that God has, I think, placed before us. Imagine a life that, that won't be touched or what God could do and where he might move us. I'm really excited about this because one of the things that we wanted to do this morning was basically launch before this congregation one of the desires that's coming out of the heart of this body. There's a lot of different ones, a lot of good ones. One of the great things that this church has done has been so generous with regard to missions across the ocean, overseas. Last year, you as a people gave over $500,000 to different mission organizations around the world. That's, That's incredible, and I praise God for it. We sent 170 people on short-term mission projects this summer. That's incredible. That's a generous heart. What we're so I'm excited about is, you know, is a kind of a one-two punch, not just across the ocean, but across the street as well, and what God can do through us in impacting the lives of people right around us. And imagine if we don't take this step, if these words weren't given today, if this message wasn't given. There will be lives that will have not been touched because we didn't get engaged. This series in August that I've been on is in Proverbs. And Proverbs is basically, I call it streetwise because it's just common sense. This is not like deep, deep spiritual truths, although they have great spiritual impact. They're just basic common sense that if you do some of these things, good things will happen in your life. And we looked at a lot of things in the last few weeks, but this week we're going to look at generosity because Proverbs has a lot to say about generosity. What does generosity look like? What are the benefits? All kinds of things. I'm just going to share with you three simple things. The first is this. Generosity comes in many forms, and here's one of the forms. Generosity means not taking advantage of another's need. That's one simple way of stating what generosity looks like. Proverbs speaks to this on a number of occasions. Proverbs 22, verse 22 and verse 23 says, Do not exploit the poor because they are poor. Do not crush the needy in court. For the Lord will take up their case and will plunder those who plunder them. Proverbs 28, verse 8. He who increases in wealth by exorbitant interest, amass it for another who will be kind to the poor. Go ahead. You know, go ahead and and, and, and exorbitantly oppress through interest and amass all this wealth, he says, but guess what? After a period of time, it'll just pass to someone else because God will make sure that it finally gets to the poor because he's so concerned about them. Proverbs 14, verse 31. He who oppresses the poor shows contempt for their maker. But whoever is kind to the needy honors God. Now, I love the way it's said in the message. Listen to this. 
You insult your maker when you exploit the powerless. When you're kind to the poor, you honor God. Thank you, bring blessing to him. David, in the Old Testament, writes a bit more pointedly in Psalm 15, verse 5. He basically says, those who know God, just, they just don't exploit the poor. One of the signs of someone who is genuinely walking in experience with God is, is one who doesn't exploit the poor. Chapter 15, verse 1, begins with these words. Lord, who may dwell in your sanctuary? Who may live on your holy hill? My paraphrase is this. Who has a room in God's house? And who lives in God's neighborhood? That's kind of what he's saying. Bottom line, he's saying, who is it that, that really genuinely knows you, walks with you intimately? What do they look like? So in verses 2 through 5, he gives some characteristics of what this person looks like. The very final characteristic he gives is in verse 5. And it says this, the one who genuinely knows God, he who lends money without usury, without exorbitant interest, who doesn't oppress those, who doesn't take advantage of those who are in need, who isn't out to make a killing of someone who is going through difficult times. Let me explain this briefly, this whole idea of usury or this idea of excessive interest. Because sometimes people get caught up on this and say, well, does the Bible say we should never be um, loaning money and making interest on it? The Bible doesn't teach that one should never charge interest, nor that we should ever. It does not teach that we shouldn't be involved in interest-bearing activities. Okay, so some of you who are involved in that, breathe easy. That's not David's point in Psalm 5, nor is it the point of Solomon in Proverbs. The Bible often speaks about improving property in a a similar way of improving one's capital. And Jesus even talked about if you've been given talents, the master expects that you take those talents and you do good with those. In the Old Testament, property is often loaned out to produce crops. You can actually loan it to someone. They can till the land, they can plant, and they can harvest it. And the idea is that after they harvest it, if you have a harvested crop, the person who loans and owns the land should actually get in a, a part of that, that usury. They should, in a sense, out of that, get a bite of that crop, so to speak. And that's what the word usury actually means. It's the idea to take a bite out. And so... He's saying in a similar way money is owned and loaned out of the profits of an owner should expect some kind of yield, some kind of interest. That's okay. But he says don't take advantage of those who are disadvantaged. Leviticus 25 verses 35 and 37 gives some insight on this. Here's the kind of interest he says not to do. If one of your countrymen becomes poor and is unable to support himself among you, help him as you would an alien or a temporary resident so he continue to live among you. Do not take interest of any kind, this exorbitant interest, he says, from him. But fear your God so that your countrymen may continue to live among you. You must not lend him money at interest or sell him food at a profit. Just do what needs to do to help them to live. In a sense, he says, when difficult times strike, a crisis bites into your brother or sister's life. Don't bite him again by lending with interest, is what he's saying. The word usury again means to bite, and so he's saying the idea is you get a bite out of the profits. That's okay, out of the profits. But in the case when a person is in the jaws of painful tragedy, don't bite them further. And there's a reason for this. Luke, if you look at um, Exodus chapter 22, he gives a reason for why we should be generous. He says, do not mistreat an alien or oppress him, for you were aliens in Egypt. Remember, you were in this state at one time, it says in Exodus 22, verse 21. Don't forget what it means to be in their position. 
God was generous to you. Exodus chapter 22, verses 22 through 24 continues. Do not take advantage of a widow or an orphan, or if you do, they cry out to me. I will certainly hear their cry. And then verse 25. If you lend money to one of my people among you who is needy, do not be like the moneylender. See, moneylenders can do that, but don't be like them in this sense. Don't charge him any usury. Don't expect a bite out of what you've given. God's compassion causes him to see the needy and it moves him to be generous. In the same way, he says our compassion should be the same because once we were in the same position. The idea is not so much that maybe financially you were ever there, but if you've been in that position, you know what that feels like, right? But his point is further than that. Those of us who have at some point in our life, if we're sitting here, most of us have come to a point where we realize that we have been in need, that we have lack. That we didn't, in a sense, have our act together. And God, in His goodness and His grace, came to us generously and didn't say it's tit for tat, you do this and do that. He didn't say, I'll rub, you know, you rub my back, I'll rub yours. He basically said, you broke my back with your sin, so don't... God, in His generosity, comes back to you and says, I'm not going to hold against you, I forgive you. And He gives you grace. Because you know what it means to be in need. I do this, and I've done it since I've been here, and I'll continue to do it on occasion. And that is that I have people look at one another, not your spouse, but turn and look at someone else that you maybe don't know, okay? This is going to feel uncomfortable for a second, but try it real quick. Look at them. They look nice. They smile nice. They dress nice, right? But the reality is every one of us are here for one reason, right? Because we all need help. The grounds of entrance in this building is we all know that we have lack and need. And that's the generous spirit that says when someone is in that position, don't take advantage of them. Then there's a second thing that you, you might be thinking about. You go, wow, I'm glad I don't do that. I'm not charging interest on anybody that I know that's excessive. I'm glad I got away on that one. But generosity means a whole lot more than that. It means more than what you, you do. It also means what you fail to do. It's not merely what you commit in the sense you don't take advantage of someone. It's what you omit when you see something and and fail to do something. Generosity means not withholding what can and should be given to one in need. It's not just that I don't take advantage, but it's also this. You withhold when you can and you could and you should give to someone in need. I know that's difficult in our world today because there's so many needs around us, but there is a sense that as we pay attention to and we listen to the Holy Spirit and we walk with the Spirit, that when God begins to push and and, and nudge in our heart and we know that we're supposed to do something, then we need to act. That's called obedience. That's called taking faith at times and trusting and moving in obedience into the area that God is pushing or or calling us to, to take that step. Generosity is by its very nature giving, but it's more, generosity is more than the word giving. It's giving with an attitude. It's giving on steroids, in a sense. It's not just what I have to or need to or ought to or should give. It's not just what God's law says I should do. It's what's in God's heart should I do. And most of those times, what's in God's heart to do, we can't even do. And we are in need again. And we say, God, help us do it. And he says, generosity means not not, um, withholding what we know and we should give to someone else. Again, there's a whole lot of Proverbs on this. Proverbs chapter 11, verse 24 says this. One man gives freely, yet gains even more. Another withholds unduly, but comes to poverty. There's something about freely giving that, is, that, that God blesses. Proverbs 21, verse 13. 
If a man shuts his ear to the cry of the poor, he too will cry out and not be answered. Proverbs 14.21 He who despises his neighbor sins, but blesses he was kind to the needy. Now you may look at that and not quite grasp that. And, and as I was reading it and, and, and looking at some other translations, the message put it so well. This is the same verse. He who despises his neighbor's sins. Listen to this. It's criminal to ignore a neighbor in need. But compassion for the poor. What a blessing. David, when I look at that verse 5 of chapter 15, and we talk about the fact that he says, the one who genuinely knows God, if you kind of go today, yeah, I think I know God, or, or yeah, I know God. Well, if you know God, one of the things he says is you won't lend money with usury. You just won't do that when people are in crisis or need. But he also says this, the one who knows God does not accept the bribe against the innocent. You may say, well, how does that, that kind of flow in this whole idea of, of withholding? See, one person needs money, and it's freely given. The other person needs a testimony in court, but the person withholds it because they're given a bribe. You think, well, how does that relate to me? You see, this person just needs a few words to clear his name, but the temptation here is for the sake of gain to withhold what you know should be given. Did you catch that? This person, he says, does not accept a bribe against the innocent. This person needs a few words to clear his name, but the temptation here is for the sake of gain to withhold what could be given or should be given when another person's in need. This kind of stuff, when you think about bribes, I often think of like it must be like the mafia. And again, this doesn't relate to us. But let me share with you an illustration to help me really understand this and experience this. There's a number of years ago, um, with my, my wife and my two kids, we were on a plane flight back from London. We're sitting in that middle section, and so my wife's here, and i got two girls here, and there's the aisle. And then just kind of, there's a, seats, three of them here, and then there were three of them here. And I remember um, there were just there was a man in the aisle and then a man kind of in the corner. I was working on my sermon because I was coming back. It was the middle of the week. I knew I had to prepare for a message, so I was working away. I had just finished one of those wonderful airplane lunches, you know, that you just die for. And um, are you hearing me? <laughs> and I was satisfied in writing on my, this message when out of the corner of my eye, I'm writing, I'm like this, I see out of the corner of my eye this guy get up and just do this roundhouse, bam, right into the guy's head, right into his face. I mean, I was like, I didn't know, I didn't know, my first thought was to protect my kids, but I mean, this guy, it wasn't a tap, you guys. It was with all his force coming down on this guy. And you looked over at this guy, and, and he's holding his head. There's, a, there's blood. He's got a gash on his, on his, right over his eye. And the guy sitting next to him now is still as can be. He's in, the, he's in the seat. This other guy's cowering in the corner. And the guy is sitting in his seat. He keeps saying this. I told him to quit screaming in my ear. I told him to quit screaming. I told him to quit screaming. And the other guy's holding his head, cowering in the corner, going, I didn't say anything. I didn't say anything. What did I do? What did I do? And by that time, you know, you had flight attendants down here, and then one of the pilots came down. They took the one guy out who was in the corner. They put the other guy, put him in the corner. I mean, what do you do? You're up in the air. What do you do with a guy who goes off and hauls and hits somebody? I wanted him to move him farther away than he was from me. 
But they didn't. They put him in the corner and the pilot sat there. At one point, now the pilot came over to me and he needed to talk to me. And he said, you know, I just want to let you know that um, in this case, there's probably, there can be a maximum five-year sentence and about a $10,000 fine. Uh, when we, uh, when we're getting ready to leave here and we, we land in the States, there'll be a flight attendant up in front that will want to talk to you. And he said, I, and then the flight attendant came and took more information. And as she's taking the information, she says to me, um, would you be willing to be a witness? And I'm going, great. And then she says to me, you're the only one who saw it. And I thought, okay. And she explains to me further. She says, now when we land, I'll make sure that you find this flight attendant up there if you've been willing to witness. And I said, yes. And I'm wrestling with my thoughts. I'm thinking to myself, do I really want to get involved? I may have to fly. They told me back to North Carolina where we had landed. This guy's huge. He's crazy. I'm wrestling with all these thoughts. And so as we deplaned, which I find is a very interesting word when you think about deplaning, because um, how many of you have ever deboated or detrained? Uh, or did you decar when you came this morning? Some took the bus, you debust. Anyway, I, as I was deplaning, I, um, I come off and, and the flight attendant shows me a number of FBI agents who are standing there. They gather this guy, a few of them do, and they take me off to the side. And, and the guy, one of them, gives me his card. I have his card to this day. It says FBI, Don Wolford. He hands it to me. He says, Don Wolford, special agent for the FBI. He says, I understand you're willing to testify. And I'm going, oh, shoot. He goes, you know, you may have to fly back here if there are some counter allegations and the trial takes place here. I'm not sure when it's going to be. And I'm just thinking, oh, man, it's, you know, it's the end of the summer. It's fall. i got all this stuff going on. But okay. And, and then he says, and if we need to, we can provide a witness protection plan for you. Just, just, just kidding. I'm thinking, do I want to do this? Thankfully, I didn't have to go back, and I didn't really hear anything else. But as I thought about that, and I thought of that in relationship to this whole idea of generosity, for me, the bribe wasn't money. It was time. It was convenience. It was my own selfish needs. But I was wrestling with putting it aside for the need of someone else. And this little incident helped me understand that generosity is being more than just oppressive, not taking advantage of someone. But it's omitting to do what you know is right and is good and is loving and withholding that. Generosity means not withholding what can and should be given to one in need. And it may not be a cash bribe, you guys. It may be convenience. It may be simply not standing up for someone when you know you should in the midst of other people because you're afraid what they're going to think of you. It may be failing to share with someone the love of Jesus because you're afraid that they're going to criticize your faith. It may be failing to meet with someone once a week for a few hours, a child, and help them with their homework. I I really don't know, and I'm not here to play God. I'm just telling you, be careful. Because generosity and those who genuinely know God, and when God prompts, like he prompted in Clara Booth's life, uh, Clara, um, thank you, listen, Barton's life, William Booth's life, Tabitha's life, Paul's life, some of these people in Hammers of Hope and some of you who are doing other things, they took a step and they weren't bribed. They pushed through that. 
And one of the things you need to know, just the last thing about generosity, and I'll make this really short, it means lending to the Lord through the poor to those who are in need. You're not just giving to Isaiah free when you give your, your money here or your time. You're not just giving to some of the people here or through us to other organizations. You're not just giving to Interfaith Outreach when you give money there or food. You're not just giving money to any of these local missions organizations. You're actually, and you don't even see it, this is the step of faith. You're giving it to the Lord. And yes, you need to do all the homework to make sure that you're giving to places that are using the money wisely and they're, not, you know, and they're faithful with what their call is. But if they are faithful with their call is, here's what you need to know. The step of faith that you're doing, the obedience you're taking, is you're giving it to the Lord as he distributes to the poor. And generosity, if you want this in your heart, it is not something that comes easy. We are such a self-absorbed society. We are so time-conscious, and everything is so about us. Just watch any commercial. It is always based on your need. And if you really want this generous heart, and some of you already have it, and you display it among us as models of, of generosity, but some of us are in this position where we're saying, God, I don't want to be self, so self-absorbed. Everything's about me. It's about what I can get and what I can do. And God is maybe prompting you. He may be prompting you this morning. He may be knocking on your heart saying, you know what? Some of the things we're talking about, he wants you to get involved in. And he's pounding on your heart. And you know what? You're going to probably hear it. And you know, you may move into it and then fail. That's okay. Part of the process of growing is hearing the voice and responding and just continue to do it. And if you fall, get up and continue to do it. Because in time, as you continue to respond, it actually begins to build this character of generosity in your heart. There's a school teacher, her name was Miss Thompson, and she wrestled with this the same way you probably are. She wrestled with being generous. She had a student in her class named Teddy Steller. He's one of those who qualified as one of the hard ones to like. Any of you ever worked with students, you know what that means, right? One of those hard to like ones. Teddy was disinterested in school. He actually wore musty and wrinkled clothes to the school classroom. He never combed his hair. He had a deadpan face. It was expressionless most throughout the day. He had kind of a glassy, unfocused stare. And when Miss Thompson spoke to Teddy, he was always answered in monosyllables. He was basically unattractive, unmotivated, distant, and he was really hard to love. Even though Miss Thompson said she loved everybody in her class, the same, you know how you can do in your heart. I do, I love everybody the same. Down deep, she knew it wasn't completely true in her case. She knew that she wanted to, but she failed. She just wasn't as generous in her love towards Teddy as she was towards others. And whenever she marked Teddy's papers, she got a certain kind of perverse pleasure out of putting an X next to the wrong answers, and with a little flair, she would write the F. And she felt bad about it. She should have known better, because she had actually read Teddy's records. When she tells the story, she said, I remember looking at his records when he came into class. First grade, Teddy shows promise with his work and attitude, but poor home situation, it said. Second grade, she reads, Teddy could do better. Mother is, not, is, is seriously ill. He receives little help at home. Third grade, Teddy's a good boy, but too serious. He's a slow learner. His mother died this year. Fourth grade, Teddy is slow. His father shows no interest. He's in fifth grade. Miss Thompson has her, him in his class. Had him now for a few months. Christmas is here. The boys and girls come that Christmas morning before they're let out for classes and for the holiday, and they bring their presents to Miss Thompson's table, and 
They pile them up on her desk and they crowd around to watch her open them. She starts opening a bunch of them and then she finally comes to one of the presents, which is from Teddy Stallard. And she's actually surprised that Teddy would actually have brought her a gift. But there was Teddy's gift. It was wrapped in brown paper and was just loosely kind of held together with some scotch tape. Obviously, he had put this thing together. And on the paper are the simple words, For Miss Thompson from Teddy Stallard. And when she opened Teddy's present, out fell a gaudy rhinestone bracelet missing almost half the stones and a half a bottle of cheap perfume. The other boys and girls, they began to giggle when they saw that hit the desk and and, and they were kind of laughing and she immediately put the bracelet on and she dabbed some of the perfume on her wrist and she says to the other students, doesn't this smell lovely? And they began to stop laughing. Quieted down. At the end of the day when school was over and the other children left, Teddy lingered behind. He slowly came over to her desk and said softly, Miss Thompson, Miss Thompson, you smell just like my mother. And her bracelet looks really pretty on you. I'm glad you liked my present. When Teddy left, Miss Thompson got down on her knees and asked God to forgive her. She had wanted to be generous, and she was working through this process, and she just fell on her knees and said, God, I just need you. I, can't, I don't have the resources. I want you to work through me. Well, the next day when the children came to school, they were welcomed by a new teacher. Miss Thompson had become a, really a different person. She was no longer just a teacher. She had actually become now an agent of God. In that little process, what took place, she was not just a teacher or a student. She now began to see herself as an agent of God towards those who were in her class. She was committed to loving all her children, especially the slow ones, the challenging ones, the hard-to-like ones. She would be generous with her heart and time. By the end of that school year, Teddy showed dramatic improvement. He had caught up with most of the students and was even ahead of a few. Miss Thompson didn't hear from Teddy for a long time after that. Then one day she received a note that read this. Dear Miss Thompson, I wanted you to be the first to know I will be graduating second in my class. Love, Teddy Stallard. Four years later, another note came. Dear Miss Thompson, they just told me I will be graduating first in my class. I wanted you to be the first to know. The university, it hasn't been easy, but I really like it. Love, Teddy Stallard. Four years later, she received another note. Dear Miss Thompson, as of today, I am Theodore Stoward, M.D. How about that? I wanted you to be the first to know. I'm getting married next month, the 27th to be exact, and I want you to come and sit where my mother would have sat if she were alive. You're the only family I have now. Dad died last year. Love, Teddy Stoward. Ms. Thompson tells that story. What impact being generous had been in her life. To give generously yourself away, to be an agent of God, folks. Not just to be a salesman or saleswoman, not just to be a businessman or businesswoman, not just to be a teacher or a builder or a retailer or an engineer or a loan officer or, or whatever it is that you do but an agent of generously giving yourself away so that what we do in here makes a difference out there. Let's stand and pray. Father, you are so madly in love with us. We just want to tell you how madly in love we are with you. 
But we don't want to just say it in words, God. We as a body, as a group, as individuals want to say it with our life and the things we do and the people we affect, that we might be agents of your generous love towards others. We give you thanks in Christ's name. Amen.